Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent startup community. Inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe in partnership with Google for Startups. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high-growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There's no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by 99designs, the global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find and work with amazing graphic designers online. Founded in Melbourne, like that. From logos to websites to packaging and books, 99designs is the go-to creative resource to build your brand on any budget, which is super helpful for entrepreneurs. And right now, our listeners can get a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. A contest is a great way to get started and find the right designer for a long-term work. You can also book a free design consultation with a brand expert at 99designs to receive personalized design advice over the phone. Their team of design experts has helped thousands of business owners. It's a great way to get the most out of your experience with 99designs. It's all simple. Just go over Head over to 99designs.com slash startupgrind for your upgrade and to sign up for a design consultation today. Fun fact, by the way, our founders Joel and Derek met on 99designs. There's a funny YouTube video promo for 99designs, an old school one, where we are literally in the garage. Check it out. It's worth a watch. Thanks, 99designs. Welcome back, everyone. This is your buddy Chris showing you. This is the Startup Grind Global podcast and today we are coming live from barcelona i got my good buddy alex rodriguez but that's how you say it um who runs barcelona for us in addition to the big conference he has hosts there as well um check it out if you're in town and um he is um interviewing chad west cmo for revolut a uk financial technology company that offers banking services but it's so much more than that, Chad. Um, definitely check it out, download it. It's a great product. Um, I particularly love the vault feature so you can um, put money aside and um, that you can't get to. It's just trapped in the vault, um, which is handy for me because otherwise I'd try and take it out, take it back out. Um, and they have a great conversation. I love this one, uh, particularly given the growth of Revolut. Um, and uh, the, the pace at which Revolut is growing um, around the world and um, all the things that ha- come with those growing pains. Um, great conversation. You'll love it. Enjoy. Well, thank you for coming. I was going to ask you how many times have you been welcome on stage as a rock star, but I did ask you that in the conference. So let's break it up by just starting. So since last time you were here, how much has the company grown? Can you give us, can you update this a little bit on the numbers so that we can build up on the operations side of things? Yeah, so I think... Last time we were here, in terms of customer numbers, we were about 2.5 million. Bit of a guesstimate, but I think that's what we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and as of today, we're 7.5 million. Um, How about this team size? Is that something we, you've also grown a lot? And countries that you're operating? Yeah, God. I mean, we're now in over 30 European markets. Um, as a company, I mean, when I joined Revolut, it was like 20 people in a, in a work, a little workspace. And that was only three years ago. And we're now... 1,400 people, and I think we're adding about 50 people per month um, at the minute. I mean, it's gotten to the point where I walk in the office and I literally don't know anyone. I, I had a new starter come up to me and go, oh, are you an intern too? <laughs> <laughs> 
And of course, I bullshitted and went, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's crazy. Um, very, very big in terms of the customer size. And if you break that 7.0 million down to daily acquisition, um, before we, I'll talk about the marketing strategy, but yeah. we were about three and a half months ago averaging 18,000 new accounts per day. And that alone equated to over 5 million a year. Um, and now since we've launched a paid referral scheme, which I'll talk about later, um, we're now averaging between 25 and 30,000 accounts per day. How about the marketing strategy? How has it changed? You started bootstrapping. We talked at length about bootstrapping marketing teams in, in our conference. You mentioned that, you know, those words that you had on Twitter with N26 and their founders, which was like a great story. But how, how has that changed? Obviously, now you're doing more paid marketing, and then you're probably having a sales representative. So how, how is it structured right now? It's very different. Um, I mean, when, look, when I joined Revolut, it was made very clear there wouldn't be budgets. Right? There wouldn't be lots of money to go out uh, and, and get acquisition. Everything would have to be quite hustle. It would have to be organic. Um, and I actually prefer it that way um, because it's a real way to build true customer loyalty, to build true brand awareness, to really define who you are in the industry. Um, so we really the reason why we were able to grow so quick is because we stood out in a very crowded market because we acted differently, we spoke differently. We, we literally reviewed everything. I mean, the first thing we decided we wanted to do was real community marketing. Because, um, I mean, before Challenger Banks came, I mean, has anyone here been to a Revolut Rev Rally, our like Revolut events in Barcelona? Um, oh, that's so. awkward, isn't it? You should fire somebody in your Patricia's team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, country manager, I think, not doing the job. Right? Well, we have them. Um, they're very successful all over Europe. <laughs> Hundreds of people come in. Um, and, I mean, hands up if a bank has ever invited you in, gave you a beer, some pizza, and really opened up their dev stack, really talked about their products. They don't, right? Um, or if they do invite you in, done something wrong, haven't you? Um, so we really try to sort of build this really community in fintech. So every single month in all the cities that we operated in, we'd send out emails to all of our local customers in those markets. We'd invite them in, we'd bring some kick-ass speakers, like top directors in the company, travel them all over the place. Um, and they really started to become exciting. People wanted to come to the next Revolut Rally because ultimately what, we, what we're known for in the industry is, is launching products at lightning speed, right? Mm -hmm. Getting stuff out. So people were constantly excited because everything that we built was based on them. So how that community marketing went further, it wasn't just a case of we're hosting events, come to our office, have some beer, see what we're doing. It was we're launching this product, you asked for it, right? So we would put our dev stack public and say, look, this is what we're building in the next three to six months. Vote it up or vote it down if you like it or you don't like it or make a new suggestion and we let the community decide what our next feature was going to be. Um, in fact, one of the features that we built that's been the most popular was our roundup feature. Mm -hmm. So every car payment you make with Revolut, we round it up to the nearest euro and stash your spare change in a separate wallet, right? Um, that came from a customer and it was voted up by hundreds by so, other customers. So it's not a marketing stunt, it's for real that you're using that? Because I've seen companies yeah. that they have this public roadmap, but they're like, yeah, that's for PR. No, it was real it's because the... we even said, what should we call it? And a okay. customer said, vaults. Um, the idea of like you have your own little vault and you lock it, um, it had the most upvotes. So the customer got a shout out, free metal upgrade, and they named that product. So we really did everything we could to bring the customer as deep into our brand as possible. And then that extended to other areas like our tone of voice. When, we look, when I looked at financial services, it was very corporate, it was very jargon. But part of the reasons that big banks are able to manipulate people and cross-sell you products you don't need, add on markups that you can't see, is because of the way they talk, right? You don't understand it or you don't want to understand it. So one thing we were very big is we made our tone of voice guidelines public. So we, on our website, we have, we have a dedicated tone of voice, and it really speaks about the way that Revolut talks as a brand, which is down-to-earth human. I always say to all my team of copywriters, speak to a customer like you would a friend. 
Yeah. Right. So, and we have these rules of like, don't say this word, say this word. So instead of like inconvenience, we say trouble. Right. So we just really mm. dumb it down so our customers understand how we speak, and it's quite cheeky as well. There's some emojis in there. Um, we do lots of funny things like when it's people's birthdays or their anniversaries with Revolut, they get unique push uh, notifications sent to them. So I think that whole identity was just so new to people because we were one of the first of these like challenger banks, right? Um, so this just did not, ex it doesn't sound genius now, right? But this did not exist back then and it drew people, particularly millennials, um, but it drew them to it because they had more trust and affinity with the brand than what they did with, you know, I mean, I, I, I bank with Santander, a Spanish bank, right? Yeah. The shit. <laughs> Um, They're not my sponsor, so you can say it. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's fucking lucky. I didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, without ranting on, it was just really trying to find a unique identity in the market and really make people think. Wow, not only do they have a great product, but I actually love their tweets. I love their emails they send us. I mean, we did that really funny email that went viral. It was about Brexit. Yes. I don't know if you got it. No, but it was maybe you won't explain it. Yeah. Oh, shit, I don't remember it. But it was like <laughs> using politicians' surnames to update them on Brexit. Yeah. And it was like, we know Brexit's a bit of an, I mean, I don't have a, I don't, I'm not. I'm not going to talk about politics. I don't have an opinion on it, but yeah. um, it no, was no. like, you know, don't be sad, have a strawberry Macron, and there was yeah. like lots of little things. Yeah. So, and people were just like. It might be difficult, right? It's just things like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, remember, I remember that one. That was, that was pretty good. So how much are you fetching from, or borrowing from, from traditional banks? Because, I mean, you have turned into a bank. You were not a bank at the beginning. You were more a payment platform, if you will. Maybe that's not the correct definition. Yeah. But now you've brought people from the banking industry. Your directors of uh, in many many different fronts. So how much are you borrowing from them? And do you think that it's contaminating or polluting your your culture? Not so much. Um, I think yeah, we've made a lot of appointments. I think like at all fintechs, right? You start off in the early days saying like we don't want to be like the banks, you yeah. know, at the banks, and that's still true in terms of your DNA and the way you operate internally. But I think there really comes a point whereby one thing I realized is I used to think that you know banks didn't have very good people. That was my view because everything I saw I didn't like from yeah. the UI, the UX, the marketing, it just never resonated with me. But what I actually realized is there's a lot of good people at banks, but they can't be good, right? Because of the environment that they're in, the bureaucracy, the red tape, the legal, the restrictions, what it may be. And yeah. I think when you're building a bank, there comes a reality whereby you have to bring in certain expertise. When you start uh, breaching into lending or trading, you need people who have that expertise, who have worked in trading, who have worked in lending, who understand the regulation, who have um, uh, the contacts. So there's no bankers in my team. Um, <laughs> I don't, see that, I don't see that changing, yeah. um, but there are in, in, in several teams now. But at heart, we are still a tech company. I mean, 80, 90% of our employees are all tech background. There's a cycle in, in startup branding or startup, let's say, arrogance, in which when, when you start your startup, you're like, I'm not a bank. Like, fuck banks. Like, they're all shit and all of that. Then they realize they need to piggyback on them to get into the industry. So like, yeah, we're bank friendly now. And then when they're in the position of power, they just ditch them all together and replace them maybe. And now they're against banks uh, uh, super aggressively again, right? But you have followed this strategy all along. Do you yeah. see this changing? Do you think this has helped you to stand out as like a really different company because it, it stands true to your core values? Ooh. It was a long question, right? Yeah, it's a good yeah. one though, I think. Oh, yeah. Because your brand strategy naturally changes as your business develops, right? Exactly. And equally, not only as your business develops, but as you go into new markets. When you not, sell out as well. Not yeah, yeah. when you sell out. <laughs> so I don't think I'll ever change in my way. Um, but ultimately, I think there will become a point where you have to horn it in a bit and you think, okay, we're now you know, a highly regulated 
very large company um, and maybe this brand has to be matured a little. Maybe we have to take it up because if we want to appeal to older audiences, you know, we're not just about millennials and young tech professionals anymore. We're also about the 30 plus, the 40 plus, the 50 plus. Yeah. And you have to find that balance. So I don't want us to sacrifice who we are and what we stand for because that is this sort of the spine of our success, right? Yeah. Um, and I think you risk, if you start to drastically change yourself and become this very corporate company, what you're doing is you're risking losing affinity and loyalty with that band of customers who really made you, right? Who mm. stuck with you and liked you for who you were and they see you as a exactly. bit of a corporate sellout. So I'll, so long as I'm there, I'll never allow that to happen and I'll keep pushing um, should it does. But I think there naturally becomes a point in some areas where you have to mature up a little bit and you have to think, okay, this worked then, but it isn't really working now. How can we be more um, sort of more diverse in terms of our audience yeah. and how we're reaching and speaking. All right, and how, let's talk about like building the team because obviously you've had to hire a lot of people, people you don't know now, but you will familiarize with them. So how many, how many people have you got in your team right now? What's the biggest learnings you've done in hiring and how did you scale things in this hyper growth that you're experiencing? Yeah. Joe, so I have something to admit. Um, like when I worked at Rocket, for example, I had a very small team. Um, you know, it's typically German, very efficient, very lean. Yeah. Um, you have a thing with Germans, right? <laughs> yeah. The conference was the same. Like, I just yeah. worked with them for so yeah. long. So they're just an easy target for me. Yeah. Um, but I... Uh, I think everyone is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's the hardest thing because what, and what I found when I worked at Rocket is that I love doing things and I love doing it right. And I really fucking hate it when I get something wrong. I'm one of those people that it really gets... I, I learn from my mistakes. But I'm not one of those people that's just like, ah, no big deal, let's move on. I'm like, fuck, why did I let that happen? Um, yeah. And the biggest, the most terrifying aspect of that is you become someone who struggles to let stuff off, right? What I mean by that is you can have a great team around you, but you're such a control freak and you want to do everything your way that you don't understand the power of delegation, mm -hmm. of actually getting you know, your wider team to work. Because then you do things smarter, you do things faster. And there's this famous saying we say in Scotland, which is, you know, you can half-arse a load of things or you can whole-arse one thing. Right? And it basically means like focus. Um, and I find myself with a very small team, Revolut growing incredibly fast, me not prioritizing recruitment and us buckling under the pressure. Um, you know, working crazy hours, trying to catch up, trying to hire. So for me, I, I learned pretty quickly the importance of scaling your team uh, and the importance of delegating. But the only way that works is if you get the right people. Uh, and that sounds very generic, right? You, know, you have to get the right people. And yeah. I kept saying to myself, well, how do I get the right people? And I, again, that control freak nature, I didn't want to depend on recruiters. I said, no, I'm going to go on LinkedIn. I'm going to, I know the companies I admire. I know the agencies that I admire. I'm going to go out there and find those people myself. And I did that, and I stand by it, because a lot of my team today came that way, and they're still with me. Um, in fact, in the three years I've had a team, out of about 15, 16 people now, only one's left. Yeah. So we have a hugely high retention rate in the team, which is great. Um, but I started to think, well, how can I get good people? Because one thing I realized is marketers, PR people, they're great talkers, right? Um, yeah. which means we're good bullshitters. Um, <laughs> and anyone can bullshit an interview, right? You can, <laughs> shut up. Uh, you, you can sit there and, um, yeah, I could sell you this bottle of water, right? Yeah. That might, I mean, that bottle of water isn't anything special, right? Yeah. Just saying feedback. But I, um, yeah, I could sell it. And it seemed, I found the same thing as with an interview. Someone could sit me down and, and sell me the dream and say how great they were. But when it came to practice, maybe that wasn't the case. So I started to think to myself, well, how can I start to do that? And something so simple, but I found the power of a home task, you know, was simply like, you know, I, I want to actually give them a small, um, very quick task that will just allow me to understand their creative ability, their strategic thinking. Are they data driven or are they not? Um, and that really helped me big time because we get, you know, hundreds applying to a single job and you'd have to go through and screen everyone manually. 
Um, and what I did is I created a home task that I thought this will give me the right person. And I had a scorecard next to it of here's how I score that home task. And that's how I really move, make this process move and find the right people. Um, so the first interview was like a 20 minute phone call um, with a member of my team. Then it was the home task. And then from the home task, it was myself. Right? So it was a nice structured process. Um, and that was sort of the best way I've found to really find the right people um, who thought like me because I had that home task, I had that scorecard. And when that matched, then it was just a face interview to not only go through the home task and understand more about why they did that and why they did this, but also to assess, you know, are they the right cultural fit? Because that was the other one is, um, I think I said it last year in the conference is one thing that really bugs me is like, you know, people who are afraid of hard work um, really fucking bugs me. Um, I think that's a Scottish thing as well. Like we are just grafters, right? Um, and I think... Yeah, you know, I spoke about this sort of millennial entitlement that's yeah. like, I don't want to work past 5 p.m. It's like, don't fucking work in a high-growth startup then, right? Yeah. It's simple solutions. So I had to find a team who, you know, the goal is never to work late, but I, I knew I'd have people that if something went wrong, we'd all be there, right? We'd get it done, we were efficient. So I had to find that right mindset of someone who was very driven, very ambitious, constantly wanted to go the extra mile, was always going to be there, dependable in an emergency, because all those little soft traits are very important too. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's been tricky and now I'm hiring like crazy. I mean, my job has become not boring, but a little bit more boring. It's not so much hands-on anymore. Now it's sort of managing teams, monitoring dashboards yeah. and hiring. I'm practically, I'm a glorified recruiter. Um, so, cause we're hiring in Asia now and I've got, I've got to realize that, you know, what works in the UK from a brand perspective, Asia is very conservative and, you know, Europe is a bit more, you know, you can get away with you know, being quite quirky and fun and, you know, Asia yeah. doesn't really like that. Yeah. So um, it's about equally understanding that, you know, the processes that you have in place here won't necessarily be the right processes there. So, for example, the home task I have in, for Asian candidates um, in, you know, Singapore and, and Hong Kong is completely different to that of uh, Europe or North America. How do you assess the match between your candidates and your company culture? Because you said, like, we've got thousands of people who applied for a job. But some of them, they don't want to work crazy hours. And you, you're a company that, you know, believe in hard working. So how do you, how do you test that? How do you see if they're a right match? So do you is, tell them right away in the interview? No, you're, pretty, you're pretty vocal about that. You're pretty open. I think the point I've always made is that it's not necessarily about hours, right? It's yeah. about output. So for example, I, my team, I, it's not just culture within my team, but you find there's a company culture, but there's also team culture. And anyone who says otherwise is shit. No, we have this one fluffy culture and everyone abides by it. I find that engineering teams have their very own culture, marketing teams have their own culture, you know, HR and stuff. It's all very different. And I love the fact because my team has, you know, one person's left in four years, which is, and for good reasons, um, not bad reasons. And that's a testament to the culture within the team, right? Um, so for me, it's about, Delivery, I, you know, I say it to my team, like, if you finish, you know what you need to achieve that week. If you finish it by 4 p.m., go home. I don't care. Like, you know what you need to achieve. It's purely based on the data. It's not about the hours you do. If you want to work from home one or two days a week, knock yourself out. Again, it's purely about making sure that we're just doing what we need to be doing. So I don't buy the argument, but there is naturally times, not so much now because Revolut's far more established. It's a very <laughs> successful business. But certainly back in the day when you're building a company, you need to put in a hell of a lot of hours. And anyone who doesn't, the chances are your startup's not going to make it. And I just don't buy the, any counter-argument to that. I've seen it time and time again. I mean, hands up if you're a founder or you're building a, a company. Um, and hands up if on average you do more than 10 hours a day. Yeah, pretty much everyone who just had their hand up, right? Not me. No, you're, yeah. you're lazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm pretty lazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Siesta. <that's> yeah. <laughs> At least twice a day. <laughs> 
But um, so that, that's it for me. And the other side of the culture is like, just don't be a dick. And I know that sounds um, controversial and, you know, coming from a dick maybe, I don't know. But, um, I think it's just a case of like, you know, come into a company. I think I love confidence in people. It's one of my favorite things, right? I love someone who is full of confidence. But, and that can be so easily um, uh, seen as arrogance. And there's a line between the two. So I love finding people who are very confident because what that means is they're typically people that won't sell. So in my team, I want people that's going to think, look, I did a great job here. How can I maximize it next time? This was super creative, but how can I make it go bigger lengths next time? So when I see that trait of someone who is very confident in their ability and stands their ground, um, that's equally something that's important to me because I hate micromanaging. I think it's the worst thing in the world. Um, I never even used to like being a manager. It, it wasn't my thing, right? And I've, I've learned that it's, it's far more interesting as you, as you start to master it. And I was lucky to have people to guide me in that. But um, equally, when you sort of have that entrepreneurial spirit within your team, you don't need to manage people, right? Because they just simply get shit done. They know what they need to do. You give them the freedom and the autonomy to do it in their way. And usually that brings out the best in people. So you're a goal-driven company, right? You're we very, always have been. You always, you always have been. So, so you've spoken about what happens when they meet the deadlines and the goals, so like you're free to go at 4 p.m. because you've already accomplished this. What happens when they don't? Yeah, it's natural. I, I don't always hit all my targets. Yeah. Um, you know, I uh, certainly as they get harder. As we get <laughs> yeah. But um, it's fine. I think you know there's going to be there's going to be ups and downs. You know, one quarter you're going to smash it. One quarter you might lay down. I think the important thing for me is just we look at the data and understand why. Yeah. You know, was it the case of you know it was just a bad season. Um, if I look at a local market, say, why well, was uptake down? Well, you know, our marketing spend was less or we didn't maximize. We didn't look at the data soon enough to understand that this wasn't working, but we should have doubled down on this. It's totally fine. I'm a believer in that you just learn from your mistakes. Um, and I, I, I actually encourage mistakes in the team. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good thing. I think you learn from your fuck ups. And, you know, I'd rather we do five things and do four wrong, but we absolutely annihilate one and do yeah. it because that really sets the strategy going forward oh, I've gone look we we really doubled down in these five areas four of them after time and time again we didn't make it work but this one area we did now that's really going to help us levy as to where we go forward um, so I think um, yeah if you don't hit it it's like um, it's not one of those companies where like you don't hit your targets you know you're out um, I think there's been you know when you're younger and a much smaller startup you know that can be the case and you yeah. have to, and the important thing is you have to learn from that culture right and think you know that mm. I mean, that, that kind of culture never works, and that was picked up pretty quickly from us. Um, yeah. But ultimately, one thing I said to you before was we grow so fast. So this idea that you can have a culture that is perfect and you're set in stone is bullshit because your culture is going to constantly change as you hire more people, as you open new offices, yeah. as you open in new regions, and as you bring in new people as well, right? Um, so I think culture for us and, and for me is a constant evolving thing that yeah. you just have to really focus on. I mean, one thing we do in our team is every quarter – um, there's an anonymous survey, and it's fully anonymous, whereby um, my team uh, rates me uh, as, as, as the head. They rate our, themselves, um, and we can really review it and understand what's going well and what's not. And me as a manager, like, you know, one, um, I think the last one we did, one of my team, or I don't know who it was, but so, uh, there was a consistency in that we need more time from Chad. Um, I find myself traveling so much, I was busy so much, and they were like, you know, Slack is okay, but we really actually want more one-on-one -on -one time, we yeah. need some more support here. And that was a good learning for me, because my view was like, I'm not a micromanager, right, just get on, do it. And what I realized is some people actually still needed some support, um, and, a, and a hand forward, so that was good for me. And, you know, as you said, we're goal-driven, but we're also very data-driven, and it's yeah. thanks to that data that we can evolve that culture to know what's working, what isn't. Um, how about, so th there was, a, there was an, an image, a screenshot circulating, making the internet like a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, right? A message 
on Slack by the CEO saying like, we need to, you need to hit the goals because this and that, otherwise, you know, we're going to lay off some people or you're not making your, is that, was that real? Was it something from the old times? Is that? Uh, it was real, but it was from the old times. Yeah. Um, I still remember it, actually. Because um, the formatting was a bit odd. And I was like, that looks like old Slack, but I'm it was. Yeah. It was from, uh, I mean, it was a few months, probably the start, it was December it came out. Uh, December, December. Um, right. last year. Um, and it was from two years ago. Um, and it, yeah, it wasn't, you know, a great thing. I think one thing, I, I, I have the privilege of being able to sit down with Nick and Vlad, our founders, um, yeah. and really understand, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, what they're thinking, what they're going through. And when I sat down and, and we spoke about this, I think one of the great things that was said to me was, look, you know, we were such a different company back then. None of us had ever run a company. Like Nick and Vlad had never run companies. Yeah. They worked in big banks. They worked on trading floors. So you're an individual on a trading floor, right? There's yeah. no teamwork on a trading floor. You're up there and you're hitting those targets. Yeah. And I think one thing Nick said to me that was great is that this has been such an evolution for him in terms of like what he's learned. He's suddenly gone from working in a trading floor as an individual contributor to going into a company and managing 10 people to then 50 people to 100 to 500 to 1,000. And his view was like, you know, I didn't get it all right. I definitely didn't get it all right. I made some mistakes. You know, you do things you're not necessarily proud of. Um, but what Nick does, and I firmly agree with this, is that it's just about learning from it. You can sit there and beat yourself up and constantly think, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Of course, the case. Or you can think, how can I not repeat this again? How can mm -hmm. I make sure? And, you know, back then we didn't even have, um, you know, really a HR function. Didn't exist, right? This uh, idea. Yeah. We were just like mostly tech people, data scientists, engineers, and a few of us, you know, a legal guy, marketer. We didn't really, we were so busy just getting shit done and working, we didn't really think about that aspect of it. And then now, you know, we have a fully fledged team of like 15 people in, in people operations and, um, you know, the founders and stuff are completely hands off. You know, <laughs> they try. Don't write on Slack. No. Yeah. Um, hands off Slack. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a, all I would say is it, it's, it's from a long time ago. We're definitely not that same company. We matured, as you might expect. Um, and as you said, you know, we, we attract huge numbers of people, our, our retention rate, um, our turnover is less than 3%. Yeah. I go with the data, right? It clearly shows Revolut's a great place to work. We just got named LinkedIn's second uh, most attractive company to work for, hired the recruitment company just named yeah. us as well. So I think we learned from it. Um, and uh, as you said, we're, we've got great, you know, a phenomenal culture. And I know that's only going to change and get better and bigger as we expand and go even further. But I, the second part of the question was, maybe that attracted the right kind of people that want to work with you because they are really aligned with this kind of approach, right? Do they work for that? Like, yeah, did not... it provide just PR, which is always good? Or was it, ha like, did it have any sort of good benefit? Or not really? What specifically? The, the... That, you know, that thing circulating. No, not that. really. And you yeah. wouldn't really want to attract, you know, that kind of mentality in a, oh, yeah. to a huge extent. I think it does attract, you know, one thing we've always done is attract goal-orientated people. Yeah. Um, I mean, Nick has this personal KPI of that he hires future founders. Yeah. And what he means is every, like, with most people he hires, he really wants them to then go on after Revolut to do their own company. It's one of his goals. So he looks for people who are data-driven, who are analytical, who, who don't settle, who get shit done. We say these sort of phrases. And it's not buzzwords. It's generally the mentality we look for. It doesn't mean that you'd be a dick in that process. Of course not. Um, it just means that you know, that is the way we operate. It's why we've been so successful. Um, it's why most companies who do really well have that same sort of operational uh, position as well. So you've got to keep attracting that kind of people because when you, you know who are those things because when you don't that's when things start to go wrong or that's when you have a very conflicting culture of like some people think this way others don't and things get a little bit messy. Let's dig deeper into company culture because I assume that by growing a thousand people in a year things break right maybe confidence maybe people want to get promoted but they see that you're bringing people from outside 
Mm. So how did all this hypergrowth affect company culture, like both in good and bad ways? Yeah, I think um, I think in a good way, um, it's it's really helped us define the culture because the more data you have, the more people you have coming in, identifying what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, really helps you evolve. Um, I think generally, uh, you know, we're just a much more diverse company now. I mean, if you look at our London office, it's like forty percent British, sixty um, percent from everywhere. You name yeah. it. Um, so that's given us a real great sort of perspective. And then each team have their own sort of way in which they like to recruit, like companies they like to go for. And that equally brings in a huge yeah. amount of knowledge and experience because, you know, the ops guys might like people who come from really big hyper growth tech companies. The marketing guys might like people who come from like top tier creative agencies and the tech might go for, I don't know, companies like Telefonica and things like this, right? Yeah. So you bring in that mirage as well. So I think the difficulty of it is, um, you know, when you are hiring at that pace, you've got to upscale everything, all of your policies, all of your processes, your onboarding, your offboarding, your performance reviews, um, all that kind of stuff. And I think that's why we've hired a great team who are incredibly experienced to come in and lead that function and make sure that it's not only does it fit the purpose now, but it's built for scale. Because, you know, right now, as you said, we're like 1400 people, but I think in the next like 12 months, we're hoping to like potentially triple that. Um, so the, Nick's vision is that, okay, everything's working now. We've got all these processes in place, policies, all the data shows that teams are happy and healthy and we have the right things in place. Where we don't, we've got clear plans of action to fix it. Um, but then Nick's worry is that this won't be applicable in a year. <laughs> he's yeah. like, we've got to keep going at it. So he's constantly hiring. And I think I haven't seen any issues. Um, I think, as you said, you know, we're now even hiring people from large banks to come into mostly areas like uh, risk, uh, compliance, what you might expect, lending and things like that. Um, but it's great because I think, as you said, some people want to get promoted, but you know, maybe there comes a reality when you're a company that, okay, you may have been there a long time, but you're actually not ready for this kind of role at this scale. And I think sometimes there has to be that reality. So it may be that you have someone in a certain department who's doing a great job for the size you are now, but where you're going, you know, the regulator commands that you get someone who's got X amount of years experience. Um, how, so. how, yeah, how about your, your transition? Well, you have already transitioned completely the transition from startup to bank challenger to a bank right now. You're attracting people from the biggest banks to work for you. Yeah. So you're, you know, in all effects, you're becoming a corporate, right? You're more than a thousand people. You've got processes in place. You probably have got bureaucracy, yeah. workflows, probably more red tape than, than you ever wished for. But how are like the oldest employees dealing with that? How all these people that want to have that startup-y feeling, how do you retain them? It's tough. How do you still, you know? Because I'm one of those people. Right? Yeah. Um, You're going to tell us something? It's a, it's a tricky one because on one hand, you kind of have to face reality that if you do want to build a global billion dollar company with hundreds of millions of users, whether you like it or not, you're going to get bureaucracy. You're going to get processes. You're going to get policies. Because if you don't, everything's going to fall apart. And if you look at all these tech companies that said it, Airbnb, Uber, all these companies were never going to be bureaucratic. They're now arguably the most bureaucratic companies yeah. out there, right? So I think there has to be an element of like, you're going to take this company so far, and then maybe there will come a point where you think, okay, I've taken it as far as I can. Um, this is not the environment I'm looking for. Um, I, I don't want to go yet into a very bureaucratic, uh, slow, we haven't become that, FYI, but um, I think you know, there will become a point where these people who have been there younger think, okay, I'm ready for my next challenge. And equally, what you find with a lot of these people is they're fucking exhausted, right? They've been, well, yeah, they've they've been, been building a company off, yeah. for like four years uh, and they're tired and they think, do you know what? I need a break. 
Uh, and by that point, hopefully they've bested some good stock options. They've got some good. They've got good salary, so they can take time off to go travel, start their own company, or maybe um, you know go and work for just another up-and-coming startup because they've got that experience of scale now, right? So I think um, uh, certainly in the conversations I've had is that a lot of us realise that some of this bureaucracy and processes and policies are absolutely needed because you know the rate that we're growing and yeah. becoming a regulated bank you have to have it right it's the reality but I, as long as you don't lose it entirely you've still got and that's one thing i like is we haven't right there's still an expectation from nick that we deliver things fast that we do things very differently to banks we innovate so yeah. that i don't think that will ever change from like a product perspective i think it's just more that internally there'll be just some more hurdles in terms of like how you get things done you know a lot more emphasis on you know uh, going through different committees and legal stuff to get things through um, but it's just an inevitability. So um, I think it will be absolutely fine because I know Nick, I know the founders, um, they are very much that get shit done mentality. It's innovation, it's build, it's deliver, it's get it out, let's test it, get feedback, go. Um, and I don't think that will go. It might take a little bit longer than what it has over the last two to three years, um, but they won't sacrifice that entirely. Um, you, you, you mentioned that company culture evolves, which is a, a topic that you know, we don't talk enough about company culture in Spain, right? I think in other countries, precisely the U.S., I think they, you know, they kind of like invented this. But here is not well spread. So, um, and most people don't even know that company cultures can evolve. So, how much has it changed from day one? How much has it changed because you had to adapt to regulations or to the market instead of just following your true beliefs? Um, yeah, I, I, it just changes. It's kind of as I've, as I've sort of elaborated on between the two areas, right? Yeah. It, it just sort of mirages when you, when you're a young startup, you have that get shit done mentality, you're moving fast, you're potentially breaking things, uh, you're trying and testing, you're hiring people with that like-minded ability, and then it comes to a point where you think, okay, now we've got this many users, and now we've got so many more obligations. So you look in you know, financial services, um, there's huge regulation around compliance, anti-money laundering, fraud, you know, you've got to have controls and policies in place for all of that. You've got to upscale your teams to handle that workload as more customers come in yeah. and that there. You've then got to hire very talented engineers to build automated systems to trigger and tack these things, right? So um, I think the only thing I'd say is, it, just to summarize, because I don't want to rant on too much, is just that you have to be prepared for the fact that if you make it and you go on to scale and you go into hyper growth mode, whether you like it or not, you are going to become more bureaucratic. Can you give a specific example of something you have, you know, given up on or something you have had to Give you an example, like yeah. if, if you launch a product at Revolut, I think back in the day, you know, it was like, boom, boom, boom. Like, yeah, yeah, we've got, we've got a lawyer who's looked at it, we've got this. And, you know, now if you look at us now as, a, as you know, becoming a licensed bank and a very, you know, high growth company, we have like various committees that you need to go through now, yeah. right? There's like a risk committee, there's a legal committee, you've got to go through all of them, get through all the sign off process. Everything's like monitored on JIRA boards, so you can see the processes, what's to be done, what's in process. Um, and, that, and then, you know, one, so if I'm launching a product, my engineers have built it, we've tested it, amazing, great, legal, great, risk, great, compliant, now marketing, now comes. So it's not There's as effective, this, it's not as fast-paced. It's not as fast-paced, but you can argue to an extent that maybe it's better, right? Because if, even if it takes a bit longer and it's a bit more bureaucratic, it could end up being far more efficient, uh, it could end up being far more customer-friendly because you've gone to all these people and you've made sure that everyone is working with you. Uh, that was was that? Was I saying something? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but you get the point, right? The point I'm trying to make is it, it can't all, it's not always a bad thing because it can actually lead to you being a far more trusted company, a far more efficient company, 
um, doing things right as opposed to doing them fast. Because you know you can move fast and break things, or you can move fast and fix things, right? So um, as long as you, you embrace the bureaucracy to an extent, because you'll need to, but just make sure that it's efficient bureaucracy. Um, and it's not the kind that just completely lags you behind competition. Because again, even though Revolut's very big, we're now seven and a half million customers, we're knocking all the other players out of the park in terms of growth, in terms of revenues, in terms of expansion, but we're still in a very competitive market. So we can't afford to be you know, too bureaucratic and too slow because what happens is all these competitors start to catch up and pick up pace because they haven't yet adopted that level of bureaucracy. So it's very important for us that we do it to a level that works and is needed. Um, we don't let it take over. Um, and that's what you, you said. Someone said to me, well, if you hire too many bankers, it's just gonna be full of bureaucracy. Very true. <laughs> that's what why- What do you wanna make it? Yeah. What you're going to do. Well, we've been very good at making sure that the, the people we're finding who are coming from financial services, traditional banks and things like this, that they're equally technical. Right? It's not just a case of, oh, great, you are a chief something officer at a bank. It's, oh, great, you're a chief, first, uh, chief whatever officer at a bank, and you actually know how to code. You're very analytical driven. Uh, you, I can tell from meeting you and going through this interview process and your home task that you've got very much a get shit done attitude. You want to be hands on and stuck in. You don't just want to sit back and delegate and be a manager. Right. Um, so again, not, and as I said, a lot of banks do have good people and maybe they just find themselves in an environment where they cannot be as good as, as they are, right? Uh, and if we can steal those people, fantastic. In terms of company culture, what's the, what's the biggest fuck up you've done yourself? Mm. Yeah. Mm. You want to share one? Just one. I think myself. Yeah. Um, I think like here I did not follow the guidelines for the specific value of the company or, you know. Because if I don't ask this specific question, people are like, yeah, I hired the wrong people and that's it. And that's like a really shit answer. Yeah, I think yeah. We, all, we all hire the wrong people yeah. at times, right? Not me, so, but yeah. Not you. Yeah. <laughs> Never. Do you know what we need to do? We need to go to all his employees anonymously. I mean, I haven't hired a thousand people. So yeah. but, um, Sorry, back to you. I don't know. I, I, I generally... You don't fuck up. I, I try not to. Um, from, I, I, I wouldn't, from a culture side, I don't think so. As I said, I think we've built a really stable culture within the team. Um, again, right. I think that's testament that one person out of 15 has left in two years, and they left for a great reason because they had a great opportunity in another country. Um, the data that I get back from um, the performance reviews is overwhelmingly positive with some good constructive stuff to work on. But in terms of like a fuck up, I mean, as I said, yeah, maybe in leadership or like in, in growing, hiring, something like that. I think managing people. I think I was never a good manager. Uh, and yeah. I'd argue to this day, I'm still not necessarily a great manager. I just can't think of anything worse than my entire Monday being meetings and catch ups. It's disgusting. I mean, I, I, I want to do like a quick 15-minute call. How's it going? Great. Awesome. What's your focus this week? Awesome. What's your goals uh, as a result of that? Awesome. If you need me, I'm on Slack, right? <laughs> it's kind of, and maybe that's not right. Maybe some people sit there and be like, no, you need to nurture them and pet them. And I don't think so. Um, so I think for me, maybe that's bad. And I guess I, I'll find out, right? But so far, I'm scaling my team. It's going really well. People are coming. People are staying. Everyone's hitting their targets and their KPIs. And I think a lot of the people in my team love the idea that they, they kind of feel like they're doing a startup within a startup, like yeah. they have their own environment and they can really get it done. And as long as they're following the process, they're hitting their targets, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy. But I know at the same time, the feedback from people was like, yeah, they want you, to take, talk to you. you take that a little too far. They're like, yeah. you know, sometimes, Chad, I really want to get your opinion on something. And you say, oh, ask that person. So I don't want to ask that person. Otherwise, I'd ask, I'd ask that yeah. person. I'm coming to you. And I need to realize that, you know, I need to find more time that when my team members come to me, 
they actually need me. And one, one of the biggest feedback I've given my team is um, I, f- I found they were all like super nice with me. And my view was just like, no, no, like I, I actually encourage someone to be a bit of a dick sometimes. Like if, if you're asking me something and I'm not giving you the answer, literally just come back to me like, Chad, can you answer the fucking question? <laughs> or like, you know, I'm not like, I've asked you three times to look at this and this is the fourth. I, I don't mind it. I don't think you should ever be the manager that invokes like fear in your team. Yeah. Um, I think they should be, it's, it's kind of like that thing. Like People we will speak up as well. Yeah, right? I want them to be free spirits, right? Um, yeah. And of course, don't talk to me too shit. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, ultimately, uh, that was my feedback to the team is like, you know, okay, but you only asked me once. You didn't chase me again. Sometimes I don't even see all my Slack messages in a day yeah. or I've lost control of my emails. And that was a yeah. really good way. And now I know that when one of them messages me and I can tell by the language that this is a priority and they really need my help. So I think from a culture perspective, that, that's a good one, actually. Um, I just wasn't a very good manager. Um, I was too focused on what I was doing. I, w- I was convinced that they were doing it. But what I found is they still needed support. <clears throat> and not only am I trying to be more ha- uh, hands-on with these guys more, even to this day myself, but I'm equally hiring more people in my team to help me be number twos to me or threes, right? Who can help me manage more people because there's only so many people I can have catch-ups with, right? Especially if I'm yeah, scaling the there's team. there's only one chat. There's only one chat. Well, I want to hire, I don't know, like... Like mini chats? Like mini chats. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a disaster. Not mini chats. Uh, it would be fun, though. Mm. What's the most expensive fuck-up you've ever done in the company? Expensive. Expensive. And, and if you can quantify it. Because you run, I mean, you've done marketing. Oh, I've, I've, and got, com- I've got one. Yeah, and communication. So you test a lot of things. So maybe you spend some budget here than like some paid marketing. But Before I start, is anyone aware of like, the Tube ad that we did in London that got a lot of controversy? Too bad. Okay. Yeah, one person is. Clearly an English person. <laughs> I, um, so basically, we had this leftover budget um, from a partner. And they were like, you have two weeks to spend this or you lose it. And I was like, shit, you know, it's like 150K. Gonna, gonna, Whiskey. Gonna, <laughs> gonna <Well>. use that. <laughs> Big piss up in the Revlon office. But, um, <laughs> and, and we had no time for creative. Uh, almost zero, right? So we had to do something. We, just, we said to ourselves, let's just do an ad, an ad in the tube. So we called up the tube company. They said, yeah, we've got something available and we can get, I know they can move fast. So they were like, we'll get it up super fast. And we were like, great. So the team brainstormed. We didn't really come up with anything that was really on brand and would work on time. Um, so what we decided to do was, as a like anti-brand, you could say, was like duplicate um, a Spotify ad. Because uh, we were in the office thinking, oh, this will be funny because we knew what we were doing, right? It's like, this is going to get pickup. Like, you know, Spotify might call it out. The media is going to call it out. Yeah. So it was purely tactical. Like that. A lot of people were like, oh, they just copied an ad because they're lazy. Yeah. I was like, no, we absolutely didn't do that. Um, <laughs> still not saying it was the right thing to do. But we ended up offending some people um, because what we did is, we, you know that Spotify campaign, it's like to the person who listened to uh, I'm Sorry by Justin Bieber 117 times, what did you do? They used data to make fun of things. Yeah. So we tried to do the same thing, right? So we said like, you know, um, what was it? It was like to the 17,000 people who bought a vegan sausage roll. Oh, Pierce Morgan. I've seen that one. Yeah. yeah. And there was another one that was like, this was the one that got some controversy. It was like to the 17,500 people who ordered a single takeout on Valentine's Day. Are you okay, hun? Um, <laughs> now, where I'm from, people found that funny. Yes. Right? Scotland. But in... When you in in London, which is you know a very unique city, and, and it's kind of like you know, that way, yeah, yeah, it's very PC and, and stuff like that. Was um, it was seen as, I quote, single shaming. Um, yeah. Everyone, everyone in the team was single, so we were all sat there like, oh fuck, we just offended ourselves. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. But, you know, we live in this society now where everyone has the right to be offended by everything. Um, I and thought it would have been the vegans, though. No, the vegans thought it was funny. Oh, okay. um, I wanted Pierce Morgan to retweet it. That's why I put his name in yeah. there. Because it was trending. He was going on TV, you know, going to war with vegan sausage rolls. Yeah. I, I'm not vegan, but I tried one. It was all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was the single shaming one because literally all my friends were just like, it's fucking hilarious. And then, but we had, I kid you not, we had give or take 100 people on Twitter who kicked up a shitstorm. Uh, and of course, then the media come in and there was literally, the BBC even ran it, you know, um, Revolut. Uh, accused of single shaming and, I, and then suddenly this swarm of people come up to my desk and I just look up now on one hand people were like oh but it was lazy I get the fact that you know, it was lazy we purposely copied the, the Spotify theme yeah. we thought that would be funny and even the Spotify replied to it being like some of our best covers uh, some of our best songs are covers yeah. it's like a really cool like oh that's a good one so it was like really cool and that's what I wanted to have a bit of harmony a bit of banter um, you like to interact with brands, yeah? I do. Um, so, you know, Spotify were good troops about it. Uh, most people found it funny. I mean, when we read the comments on, like, the articles online, it was overwhelmingly like, you know, it's just a laugh, like, it's a bit of fun. But it wasn't so much expensive because we didn't pay. It was the partner's money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, overall, um, I think the only thing that I, I looked at that that I really, truly did regret was some people said, because we actually, as a financial company, you cannot see that you've bought an individual item at an individual store, right? So um, Revolut doesn't know that I just bought a can of Pepsi from, um, I don't know any supermarkets in Spain. Yeah. Tesco, right? Tesco, yeah. Uh, (laughs) We're not big around right? All you can see, all all a financial company can see is that you spent one euro at this merchant. Right? It's perfectly normal for them to see that. So a lot of people were like, whoa, this is spooky. Does Revolut know that I bought a vegan salt? And I looked back and thought, ah, shit. We were trying to be funny. We didn't make it clear in the ad that you know, this is not real data. And a lot of people, that raised some questions around, oh, are you know, financial companies potentially spying on you? So we kind of held our hands up and said, like, you know, we didn't think of it that way. That was just our bad. Um, here's clarity that we cannot see this kind of information. Yeah. Um, and the learning from that was, especially post like Cambridge Analytica and stuff like this, is yeah. you know be very careful when you're doing data marketing because um, again it's finding that fine line. But the other side, like I accept the feedback um, of you know single shaming and stuff like that, but I didn't pay too much attention to it because um, I find that when you cave into this kind of mob rule, um, especially from a very small, tiny, tiny minority. Um, there's no value in that for you, right? I think you've got to really assess, is this a major fuck up or is it not? Yeah. Um, so that was an example. And we got a lot of heat. And if you Google, you know, most of the media in the UK covered it. Um, most were neutral, but some uh, went for us. So um, that was fun. Did you piss off people in your company? Was somebody offended in the company? Because with such a big company, you would assume that, especially with... Do you know what? Surprisingly not. There was one person who said um, they, sing- they found the single shaman thing. Um, yeah offensive and you know um fair enough um uh, so not really internally in a thousand it's like, exactly internally everyone yeah. was just like oh we just thought it was a bit of fun I and um you know you can argue to one extent it worked and one it didn't because a lot of people are like oh well any press is good press which i don't buy um but on the other hand you know the data all went up you know so yeah. it was social media was through the roof the, the sentiment was overwhelmingly people finding it funny um user acquisition went up in in the uk as a result of it so Mostly single. Huh? Mostly single. Mostly single. Mostly single people. Yeah. Uh, I'm not single now. Yeah. Uh, the ad obviously worked. Yeah. Um, but, 
<laughs> but um, there we go. I think so. There's learnings from it, um, but equally there were positives from it as well. So I, I guess it totally depends on where you sit on that fence. Um, but I, I have come to realise that you know when you're a creative team and you've got a team below you and you've done something, you might not always get it right, but you've got to really assess whether it was right or wrong on a grand scale. And then you, you, don't, you don't cave in, right? You kind of sit yeah. there and be like, okay, some people didn't like it. We appreciate that. We're not expecting everyone to like it. Yeah. I mean, as you said, of course, like, find me a really good marketing team in a company that doesn't piss off the legal team every now and again or won't yeah. piss off this team. It's going to happen. Just like, you know, I, there's teams internally that annoy, my, that annoy me because it restricts or blocks things we do. But and I, think, I think, again, it comes down to that element of being risky being willing to take risk and go out there and be different. And, and, and I think that's something I encourage, not just in a fintech company, but generally. Otherwise, you just become a bunch of yes men, a bunch of robots. You're, I mean, you go on the tube today in London and you look at all of the fintech ads on the tube. They're all the same. I, I kid you not. It's a color, it's a background. There's a phone, a card, and it says something like, um, banking should be better. Yeah, it's pretty quite an imagination. And I'm just sat there, like, you know, where's the where's the emotional connection with the customer? Where's the humor, or where's the clear added value? Yeah. Um, decide what your goal of that ad is, and if it's just like a general sort of brand awareness, which is what I would call that, um, I just don't think it's going to work. I think you're just going to blend in in a very crowded market, and you've really got to find your brand identity. And again, it's also accepting that reality that you're not going to please everyone, and I'm okay with that. Um, like, like you, I'd, I'd say you're quite outspoken, quite brash. Uh, Am I? I think so. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you, you know, you'll find someone that's like, oh, I don't like, you might find someone who, in the oh, audience yeah, yeah. who's like, I don't like swearing. Uh, yeah. I'm really against people who swear and you've swore, right? Yeah. It's kind of like, you've Sorry got to be willing that. that you're going to say stuff and not everyone's going to like, and you've yeah. got to come to that reality. Yeah, I know. Last question before we open the floor for questions is, um, how have you dealt, if you have ever done it, uh, with people not reacting well to unpopular decisions? Like, hey, we need to do this because it has to be done. Like this weekend, we're going to work or we're going to do this integration or we're going to partner with this company who is not super ethical or what? how have you dealt with this situation? I think it's fine. I think if it's logical, it's fine. Like there's, there's things that happen internally that I think, oh, we now have this process in place for launching a new product and it will add on average eight weeks on to launching a product than what it used to do 12 months ago. But if it's absolutely essential because we have an extra layer of regulation uh, or because we're far more thorough in our user testing, it's fine, right? So it may annoy me, but I understand that for the good of the business, it's the right thing to do. So, when it annoys them, like huh? your team, when it annoys your team, that's how, how do you deal with that? Because you were saying like, oh, this, this maybe this was annoying me. But no, I, I was interested in unpopular decisions you take that might piss off your team. Oh, um, that's a good one. Yeah, I know, we'll ask good questions, right? Mm. Yeah. I think um, it comes back to the way I've changed, right? I think, as I said to you, when I, when the, when I uh, had five or six people on the team, I was very much decisive on everyone doing it the same way. So I would do something in the UK, I would try and localize it as best as I could to another market, and I would say to the guys, no, no, don't come up with something new, don't try something different, take this and move it there. Um, and I think that's never good from a marketing perspective because every country is different, like Spain is different to France, France is different to the UK. Yeah. Um, and I equally had this vision that I didn't like the idea of decentralization. I liked everything, I guess it was from my time at Rocket, I liked everything to be centralized so I could have oversight over things, everyone's in the same office, everyone's connected, and then what I realized is now I'm hiring local teams. So if you look at Spain, we have a local team here. In fact, we've got one tonight. Give us a wave at the back, our marketing manager for Spain. Um, 
Um, we're hiring a comms manager for Spain. We're hiring a country growth manager, a business developer. Yeah. Whereas back in the day, I would have been like, no, everything's in London. I don't, if, you don't, if you don't like it, I don't care. Um, we're doing this one general campaign and we're going to duplicate it in all markets. And I'd have someone being there that this doesn't work in Spain like, or this doesn't work in France. So that was something that was quite unpopular that really changed my process after about a year and a half where I was like, actually, I'm not hiring people who are based in London to do stuff in Spain. I'm going to have them on the ground there working and doing it. And when it comes to running campaigns, we're going to give them their own little budget and they're going to build their own local campaigns. If they want to work with an agency to facilitate it, that's absolutely fine. Um, so everything was so in-house, so centralized, um, that it just wasn't fit for scale. It was very much fit for a few markets, but not others. Um, and I think my team made it pretty clear that they didn't like that, that they wanted more freedom, they wanted more control, they wanted to have more of a say um, as to you know what the branding was in that market. Um, and then I think the other side is just sort of growing too fast. It brings pain. Um, as I said to you, you know, we're now even between 30,000 accounts per day. I think what you need to remember is that kind of growth is amazing, but ultimately, um, when you scale your customers to that number, you need to scale your teams internally, your processes, you need to scale your customer support. And think about this for me, one thing that pisses me off is if I see that we're growing, a big part of my job is making sure our brand is strong. And what I've come to realize is you know, over 50% of your brand is customer service. Right? How mm-hmm. well that experience is um, that will determine. Because you can have the great marketing, the great tone of voice, and they love it. But if they get a shitty experience and they can't get through to an agent, that's going to topple that, right? Yeah. So I would get really pissed off when I saw that, you know, clearly our forecasts were showing that we were going to grow by this, this month, that, that month. And I could see that we weren't hiring enough uh, customer support agents to sort of hold that balance, right? And make sure that it wouldn't affect the response times and the quality, Um, and it wasn't happening. And that really annoyed my team because they were getting, our local social media pages were getting bombarded with customers saying, I'm 20 minutes now, I still haven't heard back from an agent. And they had to drop everything that they had planned because they were working on crisis management because suddenly social media was blowing up. Deal with that. Intense people. But the media as well. So the media would see it and then you're suddenly on crisis, crisis management mode on the PR side. So I think... That is a battle. I mean, I've spoke to people from tons of scale-up companies, and it's consistent. Right? Yeah, it happened to us. Um, and I'm pleased to say that you know we dealt with it pretty well. Um, and but again, it's like culture; it's never going to stop. Because right? yeah. the more we keep growing, the more people we need to hire, the more yeah. we need to constantly evaluate things. So um, I think those two things um, combined. Okay. That's a good one. Then we're gonna open the floor for questions. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you very kindly to say your name, Tom Peach. One question per person, please. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is Eugene. Uh, I have a very long history with Revolut. I was actually one of the first customers. I had to borrow somebody's iPhone to sign up because he didn't have an Android uh, app at the time. So, uh, and it was great. You opened cards for anybody in the world. I introduced maybe a couple of hundred friends from places like Israel, America, South Africa, Russia. Yeah. And actually, I got a call from somebody in marketing saying that my blog post had a significant impact. So I was very proud yeah. uh, in the early days. And then you just screwed everybody who was not in the EU by closing their accounts. So I wonder what was the story behind that? Like who, who made the decision? Why? Thank All you. right. That was a big build up, but we got to the question. I love I love how subtle you are. Yeah. <laughs> it provided background. As they're like. No, it's it's a it's a good point. So this was before I was there. This is the real early days. Um, oh. <laughs> that's the blame gone? Yeah. <laughs> Um, in the bad so position days. What right? happened was um, we were in the process of becoming regulated at that point, becoming a regulated financial institution. It's what's known as an e-money license, an electronic money institution. Um, and we were able initially to go all over the world and bring our product. 
And then suddenly when we became regulated, they were like, actually, you're restricted to the EEA. So what that meant is um, we gave a heads up. It wasn't the case of like, boom, done. We had to inform customers. It wasn't huge amounts of customers in these markets. Um, but in the US, as you said, Russia um, and others, that informed them that actually, because we're now regulated, um, we're no longer allowed to operate in that market. Um, it was really unfortunate, and I get it, um, but it was sort of out of our control. Um, the regulator said, if you want this license, you operate in this area. Um, and we had to do that for our business. Um, so that's in short, um, that is the answer. But the good news is we're now getting back to scaling uh, globally. So we're launching the US in a matter of weeks. Uh, that will be followed by Singapore, then Canada, uh, Japan, um, we're looking at Brazil, India, uh, and other markets as well. So we're finally building that sort of global uh, empire again, you could say. Um, but yeah, short but sweet answer. It's, uh, it was out of our hands, unfortunately. So a bit, a bit crap, um, but hopefully we'll be back soon and uh, you can be uh, an unpaid marketer and get them all back. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My name's Chuck Herod. I run a business-to-business -business technology company. My, my question is among the 7 million customers that you have, what percentage of them, you know, sign up because it seems cool and then never really start doing much business with you versus the ones that use your services for 70 or 80% of their banking? Yeah, good question. Um, so I'm always restricted as to how much data we give away here. Um, but the good thing to know is what we call a null account. That's someone who has downloaded the app, signed up, ordered a card and never used it. We don't include them in that 7 million figure. And what we do is within that 7 million, we bracket it down to daily, weekly, and monthly active users. Um, and then of course there's the, because you know, I'd say around, we're now about almost 65, 70% of people are using us as their primary card, but we still have that 30, 40% who just see Revolut as a travel card. And that's fine. I'm convinced that in time we will change their mind. Um, but I think the reality is we've still got more to do before we are expecting people to put all their salaries in and use us. I think, you know, yes, we've now obtained the banking license, but we're in the process of now operationalizing that banking license. And that takes time, certainly before you want to passport into every European market that you're in. Um, so I think the expectation of us saying to everyone, hey, you need to use us for all of your banking services um, wouldn't be realistic yet at this point. But what we're seeing is, you know, we're now 2 million daily active users. Um, which is great for us. Um, we're now uh, 4 million monthly active users, uh, weekly active users, and then I think it's a million monthly active users. I'll double check the data there. Um, whereas if you would have looked at us 12 to 18 months ago, that was significantly less. Um, so what we've done is over the last um, sort of 12 months, we've really focused on building less travel features and really mm. focused on everyday features, bringing in local IBANs in Europe, bringing in direct debits, bringing in the roundup feature, which really helps people save money, um, bringing in budgeting controls so people can see how much they spend on groceries and restaurants and then set budgets on that per month. Um, and even now we're looking to go into things like you know, lending and other areas, overdrafts. So if you need to go into your overdraft as well, we're working on all of this functionality. So um, I think those numbers are really good. People are still choosing to use Revolut as their primary spending card. Maybe not their primary banking card. They've still got their, their bank on the side. That's totally fine. But I'm convinced that certainly in the next um, one to two years, that's going to drastically change as we operationalize the banking license and people see that we're far more competitive when it comes to, I don't know, overdraft fees or small personal loans, um, uh, when they see that we, you know, we're offering faster payments. I mean, one of the things that's really cool that a lot of people don't realize with our expansion is, for example, when we launch in the US, um, if you are a Revolut customer here in Europe and your friend or your family member has Revolut in the US, you can send money cross-border instantly like a peer-to-peer -peer payment. 
When you look at companies right now for a money transfer, you're sending, it's taking what, two, three days for money to get from Europe to the US, give or take, um, and you get a fee as well. You'll be charged, you no know, one, two, three, four, five percent With Revolut, it's a peer-to-peer payment. Uh, I've actually been testing it with a beta user, my friend who lives in San Francisco. Um, we've been sending each other $1, $1, $1, adding in stupid little gifts. Um, so that's crazy. That, that is truly tearing down financial borders. And these other things will really make people think, well, you know what? I use Revolut for my budgeting. I use Revolut for my trade in stocks. I use Revolut for my traveling. I might as well just use Revolut for my day. You see what I mean? So you really start to build an affinity and a customer's like, well, why would I have three apps on my phone? One for my banking, one for my Revolut, one for my investing, when I can just do it all within one trusted platform that I know that I love. And that's our goal. A lot of people always say to me, like, how would you describe Revolut? Are you similar to N26 and these guys? I think we're completely different. They are what I, I call just banks. I think when you look at Revolut, you can sort of compare us to like WeChat in Asia, which is, you know, it's absorbing so many different features and services within one platform that people know, they trust. It gives, I mean, I don't personally like Chinese UI and UX, but, you know, um, yeah, we prefer the clean, minimalistic look here in Europe. Um, but yeah, I'm ranting on. But um, so really encouraging daily, weekly. Uh, monthly active users and about 60-70% are now using it as a primary spending card. So um, not mission accomplished, but certainly positive steps to get. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at an event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling. <laughs>